Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. Here I will share audio versions of my content produced for YouTube, where I answer questions, analyse or just share my thoughts about Tolkien's Legendarium. You can watch the video version of this episode and others on my YouTube channel found at Stephen Gibb YT. A link can be found in the description of this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. In a world of Tolkien explained YouTube videos, supplementary books, expanded universes and wiki sites, it is easy for people to expect answers to everything. There can be no room for In a world of Tolkien explained YouTube videos, supplementary books, expanded universes and wiki sites, it is easy for people to expect answers to everything. There can be no room for debate, mystery or nuance. If a question hasn't been answered by Tolkien in his books or letters, then we should apparently choose the best answer, or the most probable one. Ourselves and many seem to forget or aren't aware of the fact that much of what we read with Tolkien's name at the top was published posthumously. Still, he didn't have everything worked out, which we can see for ourselves in the History of Middle-earth series or his published letters. What many of us call the Legendarium took decades, and contains countless revisions, versions, complications, and in my opinion, unanswerable questions. I'd argue that Tolkien's attention to detail as an author in this genre and world builder is second to none, but the Legendarium is not perfectly consistent, and that's okay. There are cracks, unfinished details and stories, and let's be honest with ourselves, there are errors. It would be miraculous if the Legendarium in all its complexity was perfect and consistent. This is fine if you are someone like me who views all of this as mythology, a work that was ongoing and one that will always be incomplete, a work that will be viewed in different ways as new readers are introduced year after year. But for others, it's frustrating, and the need to find answers or truth leads to the exclusion of certain texts to obtain some sort of canon, which is regrettable in my view. Beyond J.R.R. Tolkien, we had others like his son Christopher Tolkien, who made editorial decisions that shaped how many of us view the Legendarium today, to the point where countless readers don't seem to even make a distinction between J.R.R. Tolkien and Christopher Tolkien's contributions. We could have a lengthy discussion about the chapter of the Ruin of Doriath, how much of it was created for the Silmarillion, and what was taken from J.R.R. Tolkien's writings. Still, in my opinion, Christopher Tolkien was the greatest Tolkien scholar we have had, or will probably ever have, being in a unique position as Tolkien's son, with access to a library of information he was encouraged to work with going forward, and possibly, most important of all, deep care and understanding for what his father created. But despite Christopher's contributions being so vastly impressive that I still think he doesn't get enough credit, that doesn't mean all decisions he made were good ones, even according to the man himself. The history of Middle-earth volumes highlight the monumental effort that went into making changes to achieve some consistency, by both J.R.R. and Christopher Tolkien. And my aim here is to highlight a very small piece of this, the changes related to the last High King of the Noldor in Middle-earth, Gil-galad. Why is it possible that we can ask such a simple question 
who is his father, and have multiple answers. This is a discussion of Gilgalad's confusing parentage and lineage. He was I should provide a brief account of exactly who Gilgalad is, since he is long gone during the time of the Lord of the Rings, but present in spirit, as he is mentioned more than once by other figures. He was the last High King of the Noldor, one of the kindreds of elves, the titular ruler of the Noldor in Middle-earth. Finwë, born at a time when the two trees of Valinor stood, was the first lord of the group who became known as the Noldor, following the sundering of the elves, but was later slain by Melkor at Formnos, fortress in Valinor, when the fallen Vala seized the treasured Silmarils for his own and fled to Middle-earth. His first son, the infamous Fëanor, claimed kingship as King of the Noldor, but it is typically accepted that with the Noldor's return to Middle-earth from Aman and the death of Fëanor, the title of High King, and not just King, became associated with Fingolfin I, the second son of Finwë. After Fëanor's eldest son, Mithros, gave up any claim to kingship and showed support to Fingolfin. When Fingolfin himself fell in a duel with Melkor, now known as Morgoth, following the High King's journey to Angband after the disastrous Dagor Bragolach, the Battle of Sudden Flame, the title naturally passed to his first son, Fingon. Despite mending the wounds of the Houses of the Noldor by rescuing the son of Fëanor, Mithros, from Morgoth's clutches at Thangorodrim, the High King was unfortunately slain later by the Balrog, Gothmog, in the Nirnaith Arnoidiad, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. The death of Fingon led to the title of High King being passed to the second son of Fingolfin, Turgon, the king of the hidden city Gondolin. He died in the fall of Gondolin, the surprise attack by Morgoth's forces after treachery led them there. With his death, Gilgalad became the High King and remained as such until the closing year of the Second Age, and Gilgalad, being king after Turgon, is partly why Tolkien made changes to his lineage, as I will discuss. Science. To readers of The Lord of the Rings, he is probably best known as the High King of the Noldor, who stood side by side with the High King of the Dúnedain, Elendil, against the Dark Lord Sauron in the War of the Last Alliance, the war that led to Sauron's defeat, the taking of the One Ring by Isildur, Elendil's son, and the end of the Second Age. Gilgalad fell with Elendil in a duel against Sauron himself. His life and death are told to us in the lay called the Fall of Gilgalad. Between the Gilgalad was an elven king, of him the harpers sadly sing, the last whose realm was fair and free, between the mountains and the sea. His sword was long, his lance was keen, his shining helm afar was seen, the countless stars of heaven's field were mirrored in his silver shield. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say, for into darkness fell his star, in Mordor where the shadows are. We are told about his death even earlier when Gandalf speaks with Frodo at Bag End, in the shadow of the past chapter. It's a tale known to the wise, and the wise know of Gilgalad, bearer of the Ring of Power Vilya, that was given to Elrond when Gilgalad made him vice-regent of Eriador. 
One account in the mythology says Gilgalad also gave the Ring of Fire, Narya, to Círdan of the Havens, though it is also said Círdan received us from Celebrimbor, and not Gilgalad. Vilya is carried by Elrond throughout the Third Age, and Narya is given to the wizard Gandalf by Círdan upon his arrival in Middle-earth from across the Great Sea. These details of Gilgalad's history are known, as well as his many names and titles, yet the exact place and date of his birth are not known to those of Middle-earth or us. This is not uncommon for Tolkien. Not everyone has their entire history and genealogy mapped out. It is strange for such a prominent figure to be such a mystery. A king who is a great enemy of Sauron in the Second Age, trusted to carry at least one ring of power. A king who was a friend, ally, and later a possible focus of envy for Numenorians throughout their great kingdom's entire history. Gilgalad was in Middle-earth from long before the forging of the Great Rings, through the downfall of Numenor and the great battle in Mordor that would usher in a new age of the world. And who he descends from is more of a talking point than even the mystery of his unknown land of birth, or when exactly that occurred. Us here will make a lot Apologies in advance for what may seem like an onslaught of names, even for a discussion about Tolkien's Legendarium. What I will discuss here will make a lot more sense to those who have read The Silmarillion, and not just The Lord of the Rings, but I will try to be as clear as possible. In saying that, I want to jump straight to the end, with Tolkien's final say on this matter in his last writings before his death, before I discuss what led to him to have to write a final say on this matter. According to J.R.R. Tolkien, Gilgalad was the son of Orodreth, who was the king of Nargothrond, the son of Angrod, grandson of Finarfin, and nephew of Finrod, quite the family tree. Finarfin is the king of the Noldor in Valinor, but not a high king of the Noldor in Middle-earth. There is a distinction there, and both did exist at the same time. The interesting part for me is that there is no full version of the story or tale written by J.R.R. Tolkien to back up this claim. It is Christopher Tolkien explaining his father's writings to us, explaining the situation and telling us how his father had seemingly solved the problem of Gilgalad's father. Christopher tells us in The Peoples of Middle-earth, which is volume 12 of the history of Middle-earth, that his father had written an isolated note within the genealogies, seemingly scribbled at great speed, but dated August 1965, later than any text claiming a different history for Gilgalad. It was in his father's hand, and it suggested that the best solution to the problem of Gilgalad's parentage was to find him in the son of Orodrith, who is given the Quenya name Artaresto. He continues, Finrod left his wife in Valinor and had no children in exile. Angrod's son was Artaresto, who was beloved by Finrod, and escaped when Angrod was slain in the Battle of the Sudden Flame and dwelt with Finrod. Finrod made him his steward, and he succeeded him in Argothrond. His Sindarin name was Rodrith, altered to Orodrith because of his love of the mountains. His children were Findulias and Artanaro, or Rodnor, later called Gilgalad. Their mother was a Sindarin lady of the north. She called her son Gilgalad. 
Rodnor Gilgalad escaped the sacking of Nargothrond and eventually came to Sirion's mouth and was king of the Noldor there. This seems simple enough, except the point about Finrod having a wife, which I will discuss in a bit. But if it's so easy, why is there even a debate or confusion in the first place? What exactly is the problem here that Tolkien had to solve? Well, like many things, Tolkien changed his thoughts on this matter through various stages of his writing, and this was a solution to problems created from earlier versions, after introducing Gilgalad, and changing the figures around him. And since this never made its way into the narrative, in some version of the text, there are more complete revisions of the story we read in the Silmarillion and its earlier drafts, that have Gilgalad being the son of Finrod or Fingon, or the descendant of Fëanor, with an unknown father. For many people, it is hard to accept a note hidden away in a dense volume of the history of Middle-earth, over what they can read in other texts, especially complete stories. But again, editorial decisions can explain that. Let's look at each possible history provided to us. If we go back to the earliest version of Gilgalad's history, he is said to be the descendant of the legendary maker of the Silmarils, the first son of Finwë, Fëanor, the figure we know as the father of the seven sons who swore the dreadful oath alongside him, a rebel responsible for much of the hardships suffered by the Noldor. And it is said that in Beleriand there arose a king, who was of Numenorean race, and he was named Elendil, that is, Elf Friend, and he took counsel with the elves that remained in Middle-earth and these abode then mostly in Beleriand, and he made a league with Gilgalad, the elf king, who was descended from Fëanor. This is taken from the History of Middle-earth Volume 5, The Lost Road and Other Writings. The publisher tells us that J.R.R. Tolkien reluctantly stopped working on the legendary tales of Valinor and the early history of Middle-earth. He began working on The Lord of the Rings at the end of 1937, and this volume of the History of Middle-earth completes the examination of what Tolkien had written before moving on to The Lord of the Rings. The text I have quoted is interesting because it is the very first mention of Gilgalad as a figure, one of many firsts, as Tolkien mentions the Last Alliance, Elendil and Mordor for the first time. Even Sauron is fleshed out from the Lord of Werewolves character Thu, and in this second version of The Fall of Numenor, a new elf king, Gilgalad, descends from a legendary and infamous figure. But it would be a short-lived vision of Gilgalad's tale, as further developments of Numenor's downfall would have his lineage changed to accommodate the changes made to the elves of Lindon and the story of the Last Alliance, and a new kingdom, Gondor. Son of Fëanor, a descendant of Fëanor, still doesn't explain who Gilgalad's father was. The complication here is if Gilgalad is a descendant of Fëanor, which son of Fëanor does he descend from? How does this tie in with the oath of Fëanor and its consequences? And the line of Fëanor itself in the Second Age, following the loss of the Silmarils and the downfall of Fëanor's family and Morgoth. When Tolkien changed this in later versions of the fall of Númenor, it led to some more confusion for readers today since certain figures now involved in Gilgalad's ancestry have different names, or names used by other figures. Case in point, Gilgalad, in a later version, was found to be the son of Inglor Felagund. Those who recognise the name Felagund 
may associate that name with Finrod, and this is what the name Inglor was later changed to. However, Felagund at this time was the son of Finarfin, who at this stage of writing was called Finrod. I wasn't lying when I said it would be a bit confusing. Tolkien outlines the further development of the fall of Numenor in the same fifth volume of the history of Middle-earth, but that land where Luthien had dwelt remained, and it was called Lindon. A gulf of the sea came through it, and a gap was made in the mountains through which the river Lune flowed out. But in the land that was north and south of the gulf, the elves remained, and Gilgalad, son of Felagund, son of Finrod, was their king. And they made havens in the gulf of Lune, whence any of their people, or any other of the elves that fled from the darkness and sorrow of Middle-earth, could sail into the true west, and return no more. This is where Tolkien started to complicate things. It's not just that some names are different. Inglor, Finrod, Felagund. Tolkien wasn't just making changes to Gilgalad, he was making changes to other characters too, in this case, Felagund. Demonstrating to us that one character being altered can have a trickling effect on other characters in the Legendarium. The figure who was left behind in Valinor when Finrod made The big change for Felagund was that he no longer had a wife. Meryl was his original wife in the story, but now he fell in love with Amari, a figure who was left behind in Valinor when Finrod made his way to Middle-earth and became an exile. When Tolkien wrote Gilgalad as his son, Felagund was supposed to be married to Meryl, who was in Middle-earth and was sent to the havens of the Phalas. This change by Tolkien meant that if Finrod had no wife, then Finrod had no children. No children meant no Gilgalad, and he had to be placed somewhere else once again. Then in great sorrow, Fingon took the lordship of the house of Fingolfin, and the kingdom of the Noldor. But his young son, Gilgalad, he sent to the havens. Gilgalad became the son of Fingon, as found in the Grey Annals, and the description I shared followed text written after Fingolfin's fall at the hands of Morgoth at Angband. As I mentioned previously, Felagund falling in love with someone but being unable to wed them would mean no children would come of that relationship. But Tolkien managed to work this into the story of Felagund and his fate. He would swear an oath to Barahir, heir to the house of Beor and father to the legendary Beren. This oath would lead to Felagund's death and protecting Beren from a werewolf serving Sauron during the quest for the Silmaril in Tol and Gawarhoth. Earlier in the tale, Felagund spoke with his sister Galadriel and was asked why he had no wife. Foresight would come upon him and he would know in his heart that an oath would be sworn that must allow him the freedom to fulfil it and go into darkness. Nor shall anything of my realm endure that a son should inherit, were his words to her, escaped by sea. This brings me to the history that most will be familiar with, Gilgalad being the son of Fingon in the Silmarillion. Any of you can pick up a copy of the Silmarillion and read the following. Aladdin, but some went aboard ship and escaped by sea, and among them was Arenion Gilgalad, the son of Fingon, whom his father had sent to the havens after the Dagor Bragolach. This is less to do with where to place Gilgalad in the genealogies, and more about the figure Oradrith and his role in the stories of Beren and Túrin. Much like Galadriel, Gilgalad was quite a late addition to the Legendarium despite his importance. 
late when compared to more established figures who had been around since even the earliest writings in the fall of Gondolin. Gilgalad appears in The Silmarillion, a book edited and published after the death of J.R.R. Tolkien, as a child who had been sent to the Havens by different figures at different times, almost a consequence of other characters' stories and greater events playing out in Middle-earth at the time. He is a victim of the sprawling tapestry of a growing legendarium. As I alluded to earlier, not everything in the Silmarillion is the work of J.R.R. Tolkien. The chapter I mentioned, of the Ruin of Doriath, was written by Christopher Tolkien with the aid of Guy Gavriel Kay due to its incomplete state. Kay was a fundamental influence on Christopher Tolkien in the effort to have the Silmarillion contain a narrative over it being a collection of manuscripts, notes and revisions. Something we see in the History of Middle-earth series and Unfinished Tales of Middle-earth and Numenor. Both are different beasts when compared to the Silmarillion when it comes to a narrative. Chapters are created from drafts of various stages of completion from different dates, a process that explains why I have always felt that the final chapter of Quenta Silmarillion, of the voyage of Erendil and the War of Wrath, feels almost rushed or incomplete. Incorporating text from Tolkien's vision of the last battle, but also aiming to complete the tale of Quenta Silmarillion, which J.R.R. Tolkien never finished. I want to share Christopher's thoughts from the foreword to the Silmarillion, a foreword that explains his attempt to respect his father's works while providing a complete narrative, all while attempting to avoid rewriting the story. We must applaud his love for his father's creation, as Christopher did have his father's blessing to rewrite and rework as much as he wanted to, but chose not to. In the foreword, Christopher says that with the diversity of materials left to him, the attempt to present it all in a single book while showing the Silmarillion as a continuing and evolving creation that extended over half a century of writing would lead to confusion and would submerge what is essential. He set to work on a single text while arranging it in a way where he could produce the most internally self-consistent and coherent narrative. Certain chapters were difficult as they had remained unchanged for years and could no longer work in harmony with other chapters that his father had changed. A complete consistency cannot and should not be looked for and would only be achievable at a heavy and needless cost if it could be achieved at all. But what is the problem of Gilgalad being the son of Fingon? Well, it possibly creates a problem when it comes to the kingship of the Noldor. If Gilgalad was the son of Fingon, wouldn't he have become king instead of Fingon's brother? Explanations can be given if we talk of primogeniture or Gilgalad's age, the position of Turgon in Middle-earth, etc. I think this is one reason why it is a good thing that Tolkien changed Gilgalad's father to Orodrith. It makes Fingon childless and forces Turgon to inherit authority as the younger brother and another son of Fingolfin the previous king. It is neat and doesn't require reasons for the so-called line of succession working this way. This also caused a problem with Gilgalad and Orodrith from a writing point of view. I explained earlier that Orodrith as Gilgalad's father had not been written into a narrative, but J.R.R. Tolkien had written a narrative where Orodrith was a son of Finarfin, 
which had implications for Gilgalad's place in the legendarium. Tolkien's intention in his genealogical text was to have Orodrith become the son of Angrod and Finarfin's grandson, rather than his son. This would place Gilgalad as Orodrith's son, but what could Christopher possibly do in this situation without that heavy and needless cost he mentions in the foreword to the Silmarillion? For himself, with Christopher fully aware of his father's final word on Gilgalad, he still saw this as a complicated and major change when thinking about his goals with the Silmarillion. Notes were overlooked to provide a complete narrative, yet Christopher himself believed that he made a mistake by even mentioning Gilgalad's parentage in the narrative. Gilgalad became known as the son of Fingon when it should have been left as an unknown, ambiguous, or the heavy cost may have been considered to add J.R.R. Tolkien's late writings into the narrative, all arguably better solutions to the problem. Much closer analysis of the admittedly extremely complex material than I had made 20 years ago makes it clear that Gilgalad as the son of Fingon was an ephemeral idea. The Silmarillion cannot be perfect, and no one should claim it is. It can't reflect the ideas of J.R.R. Tolkien fully and remain fully coherent at the same time. The alternative would be the Silmarillion as an edited collection of manuscripts and revisions. We can read that now in the history of Middle-earth, but isn't it better that we also have a narrative to enjoy? Sacrifices had to be made, and unfortunately, mistakes crept their way in. The unique place the Silmarillion has in the Legendarium is why we still have constant debates about the origin of orcs. The book puts forth the idea that the original orcs were a corrupted race made by twisting the race of elves, an idea that was put forward by J.R.R. Tolkien, but one that wasn't carried forward into later writings. The coherent narrative uses the elf origin idea, even if it goes against the later thoughts of J.R.R. Tolkien, who notably struggled with the nature of orcs. Does it stop most people from outright stating orcs came from the corruption of elves as some fact? No. Why? Because it's in the Silmarillion, which is just accepted in the same way the Lord of the Rings is accepted, despite its creation being vastly different. It's why the story has a flat world, which was changed to a round world by the hand of Eru in the changing of the world when Numenor fell, even though Tolkien had started to transform the myth, with the flat world itself being a myth within the story. But the out-of-date, coherent and mostly complete narrative already existed, and that's why it was published. For many, the narrative takes precedence over notes and incomplete text and thoughts. Still, I'm not complaining about this. The publication of the Silmarillion is a testament to the dedication of Christopher in trying to provide us with a story. It's a look into the complexity of the legendarium. With what Christopher was left to use in the construction of a coherent narrative, it's a wonder that it is coherent. It's also a shame, in my own opinion, that important texts such as the Athrabeth Finrodaandrith could not be worked into the narrative. Some people speak heresy by describing what I think is one of Tolkien's greatest pieces of writing as not part of the canon, because Christopher Tolkien couldn't fit it into the Silmarillion. My message here is simple. Do not just blindly take the Silmarillion as gospel. Look at what was left out. 
read the editorial decisions and explore the essays and stories found in Unfinished Tales and the history of Middle-earth. The Legendarium is far bigger than just The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion, or Orodrith. I can only summarise and say that according to The Silmarillion, Gilgalad is the son of Fingon, but Christopher Tolkien, its editor, states that this was an ephemeral idea that he regretted. We are left discussing and debating. Is Gilgalad the son of Fingon or Orodrith? Does it matter? Personally, based on Christopher's own words and the fascinating last writings of his father, I view Orodrith as Gilgalad's father, but would also welcome and accept it as a mystery. The possibility exists that J.R.R. Tolkien may have ended up changing his mind again. Who knows? But he believed he had solved the problem. I'm also more than happy for people to claim Fingon as the father, and no one is wrong for saying so if they are reading the Silmarillion. I put no stock in what is apparently canon or true when we have so many versions and traditions as I like to call them. This is Tolkien's legendarium, a mythology, a complex collection of writings and histories that took decades to create. Tolkien solved a problem of his own making, but the debate is unlikely to end. My final word on this is that Gilgalad's history is just one of many topics that can be discussed when we speak of the so-called canon of Middle-earth. The many viewpoints people have when reading Tolkien's works, what is considered to be true or the correct version, and what some choose to discard. A book can be declared by some as correct, even when its author or editor says something was a mistake. It's a phenomenon almost unique to Tolkien, due to the way the legendarium was constructed and developed during and after his life. A frustrating and fascinating topic, and Gilgalad's family tree is just one small example of the depth and complexity of Tolkien's legendarium. Thank you for watching or listening to my thoughts on the history of Gilgalad's place in the Legendarium. I want to thank those who continue to support me and give a special shout out to Patricia for her support and the supporters of the highest tier of Valinor, NCV1993, Moses and Victus. Everything I have shared here has been the result of my interpretation of Tolkien's text and my research. You will find all references listed if you want to read more about this topic, and can also find artist and music credits. Thanks again.